the London Borough of Tower Hamlets public health team. So they were interested in uh, predominantly in why it was that in Tower Hamlets so many women were choosing to mix feed their babies, so feed both breast and bottle over a continuing longer period of time. And they came to us to ask, it came out as a tender and we were successful in getting the tender. So this is a very much a policy and practice based um, project. And this is a very much policy practice based talk. And it is, it is a paper in need of some theory. Okay, so this is why we've come here today, because you can help <laughs> us with the theory. We haven't needed any yet, because we've just produced a report for the public health team, but they do not care about theory. Um, and so in, we've been sort of pondering some of the ideas that sit behind our findings, but we'd be just really interested, this is our call to you, really interested to hear your thoughts about how some of these findings might be applied with a kind of anthropological theoretical framework, I suppose. So have that buzzing away in your mind when you listen, and then hopefully we'll be able to have a discussion about that at the end. Okay. And if anyone's got any questions as we go along, please feel free to put your hands up. So first a little bit about the background to Tower Hamlets. Tower Hamlets, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is a borough in the east of London. It has the fourth highest index of multiple operation score in the country, so it's a highly diverse and highly deprived area of London. Um, and it has the highest level of child poverty in the country. In 2009, 46.5% of the births in the borough were born to Bangladeshi women. So the Bangladeshi community is a substantial, I suspect, majority within the community in Tahamut. Yeah. So the majority, probably I just over 50% of people who live in the borough are of Bangladeshi origin. And then other large ethnic groups involve um, people from Somalia and also um, Vietnam and then kind of smaller um, clusters of people from other lots of other. So enormous amounts of immigration. Um, and so when the public health team were pondering this, this question about partial um, breastfeeding, they were particularly interested in the experience of the, of the Bangladeshi women who were living in their community because they make up such a high proportion. And they suspected that it was particularly Bangladeshi women that were skewing that, that trend uh, in terms of how people were choosing to feed their babies across the whole borough. So we were specifically asked to explore the experiences of Bangladeshi women within the borough. So we weren't taking a representative sample of everyone in the borough, we were concentrating on, on the experiences of the Bangladeshi community. And this is just a, little, a couple of little charts just to show you the, the trends. These are all of, well, many of the London boroughs that provided data for 2012 to 13. Um, and this is the percentage of women who are exclusively breastfeeding at six to eight weeks. So you can see the, Lund the um, England average at the top there and London underneath. And then Tower Hamlets is way down. So they have relatively few women are exclusively breastfeeding by six to eight weeks. But if you look at the percentage that are partially breastfeeding, the trend is completely reversed. So there's Tower Hamlets right near the top. So this is what they were, what they were flagging up. So the aim of this um, fairly short study, this took um, six months to carry out, but I was only doing it two, two or three days a week. So it was quite a small-scale study um, for the borough. And they wanted to find out the main influences on the exclusive and partial breastfeeding rates in the Bangladeshi community in Tower Hamlet. <coughs> so they knew that this was happening, but they really wanted to understand why it was happening and what it was about women's environments, their social and cultural influences that were causing them to, to make these decisions. And because they were a public health team, they were very interested in improving the rates of exclusive breastfeeding. So that was obviously sitting at the back of their mind in terms of why they wanted this project to happen. They wanted recommendations from us about how they could improve the exclusive breastfeeding rate. 
Um, but we were very much coming at it from our perspective just to see what was happening on the ground and trying to understand that and then they could do with that information what they wanted. So what influences whether or not the breastfeeds exclusively or partially? Um, Tower Hamlets has a very sophisticated network of breastfeeding support workers um, and sort of breastfeeding support within the borough. They've put a lot of effort into improving breastfeeding support over the last 10 years. And so one of the things that they were interested in was what women's experiences were of that and, and how they experienced it. They didn't ask us to do an evaluation of the project, of the, of the breastfeeding support. And so when we went out to talk to women, it just so happened, that, and quite predictably, that when you pick 50 women out of the borough, Almost none of them have come across the breastfeeding support service <laughs> because they were not because or they, they were they or they didn't know they had more and more, more importantly they didn't know they had and I'll talk about that a little more later or Chris will because I'll pass over to her. So we didn't end up doing an evaluation of the breastfeeding support, but it was something that we were asking people about. And in most cases, they weren't aware that they had had any breastfeeding support from the borough. And it was quite possible that they had in some cases, but often people don't know who it is that's helping them. They think it might be a nurse or a midwife, and in fact, it may have been a peer support worker. And they have a lot, a lot of peer support workers in Tower Hamlets who go and they try and pick up women who are having problems with breastfeeding and, and support them in those very early days after the birth. And they wanted some recommendations about how to develop local services. Um, it was very, I, was, I guess, relatively unusual for them to have the, the kinds of stories that we generated for them to think about. And when I came to do a, a presentation on these findings, um, having social science findings, that is, and having, I did a presentation to a, a group of local stakeholders and breastfeeding experts from the borough and public health experts. Um, and I think... What I was telling them when I was giving them the findings was nothing that they didn't already know, but it was framing, them, framing the findings in a way that they hadn't necessarily thought about before or didn't have the space and time to think about because they're so often consumed with that everyday um, sort of technicalities of running a service and trying to improve public health. They don't often have time to think about it within a social science framework and it gave them the space to have a discussion. So that was useful to them and that was what they were trying to get out of this project, I think, in a way that in other, the other projects that they often do, which is counting numbers, they don't so much get to have that experience. We took an, an intergenerational approach to thinking about influences. We knew, and the people who, from the borough public health team knew that older women for example within the community were very influential on the decisions that their daughters made about feeding their babies. So they were very keen that we spoke to um, both women with children under the age of five say so they had recent experience of infant feeding and also their mothers or at least older women within the community. So we chose to, chose to carry out this um, a combination of um, um, interviews and discussion groups with younger women and with older women in the borough. So we carried out five discussion groups with younger women, encompassing a total of 46 um, younger women, and two discussion groups with older women. Um, and then a number of shorter one-to-one um, -one interviews with younger and older women, and also interviewed um, eight local stakeholders. So they were people who were from the public health team themselves, people who coordinated the breastfeeding peer support, just to get a sense of what the kind of landscape was for the support that was going on, and what also that their ideas were about what the influences were on women's um, choices about infant feeding. And we had a stakeholder group which consisted of a lot of those people who <laughs> were kind of interviewing our stakeholder group. Um, <clears throat> and they were very useful in developing initial hypotheses about what we might find because it seemed like an odd thing to go out and talk to women that they work with every day. So we asked them first and we developed a framework and we're going to go through that framework. So we recruited from a local primary school, um, community centres, a sheltered housing centre to access older women. And through personal contacts, we had a fantastic research assistant 
who was bilingual in Salatian English, and she was completely invaluable to doing any of this. I couldn't have done it without her. So she helped find people that she knew within the community and also worked, um, she did a lot of the interpretation work, um, especially with older women who didn't tend to speak English. So, and this is just a little, I just did a little snazzy pie chart. Um, to show um, the um, proportion of women who spoke little or no English, but you can't see it very well. But basically, the younger women, just under half of them spoke fluent English, and then, and then about a quarter little or no English, and just over a quarter spoke functional English, so they could get by. Um, but for older women, it was very different, so two-thirds of them also spoke little or no English. It was a very different kind of um, landscape. And the younger women had an average age of about 31, and the older women about 61. Mm-hmm. And in both groups, they had quite a high number of children compared to their national average which is in keeping with their community. So before we went out to talk to the local women, we wanted to get a sense of what we might be looking for. And, and because it was quite a short project, we wouldn't usually necessarily go in with hypotheses. It seems a little odd to do that in, in our world. Um, but because it was quite a structured project about one particular theme and it was on a short period of time, it seemed like a sensible place to start. Um, and so... Um, Using the kind of existing literature that we had about um, infant feeding, um, we produced this chart, which, which, that, which basically encompasses three layers of influence. So influence at a societal level, influence at an organisational level, so for example local services, and influence at an individual or interpersonal relationship, so micro-level family um, and community influences. And, thought of, and when we presented this to the... the um, stakeholder group at the beginning, we had a long discussion about the detail of this. So actually we had kind of come up with society organisations and knowledge and then they came out with the stuff in the boxes I think, or maybe it was a combination of the both. Um, and we talked quite a lot about whether this would fit um, as a model and what they thought <coughs> we might find. And that was really, really useful as a way of structuring um, the questions that we asked um, women when we went to talk to them and also how we came to develop the later analysis. And we took once we'd done the field work we then went back to them with the findings um, and talked to them again and then kind of they helped with the analysis. Um, So that was a a really crucial process. So through the the kind of processes that this free framework kind of development, um, I'm just going to see where I am with this. Um, We constructed this idea of a kind of layer of influence and then I came across Bromford Brenner's Social ecological models, which are really neat. So um, this this has kind of so his his idea was is that everybody makes decisions within a kind of layers of influence. So we'd already sort of come up with that, and then I found it <laughs> found it conveniently in the literature. Um, and um, and so what I developed through the through the findings from talking to women was a sort of more sophisticated version of that previous model. And so I'm going to talk through, or Chris is going to talk through this effectively. So what we've got here, you can't see it, but this says individuals. This is women down here. And then this is the interpersonal relationship. So they, women are kind of making decisions within the context of influence from their immediate vicinity of their family and their community. Well, their family. And then they're having interactions with organisations, so maternity services, midwives, peer, breastfeeding peer support workers. And then there's the influence of the community and society, and I split that into two because they have very different influences from the Bangladeshi community within Tower Hamlets, and then again from the kind of broader UK norms about infant feeding. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, on the outside, were the public policy and public health messages that were coming down from the from well from the team that commissioned this research. So I'm putting this at the beginning of this talk 
to show you why the talk is structured the way that it is. But this came at the end in, in the kind of chronological process. This is so we're just kind of moving on to, to discussing some of the, the findings here, and uh, this is a quote from one of the older women. Um, but uh, as Juliet was saying, you know, this was a this was a very short, um, very small project where you know we, we were being asked to deliver public health messages and recommendations in a very structured way, very quickly. But we wanted to try to not lose sight of the, the complexity of things and. and Obviously, the public health people are concerned with what's best, and um, what what came out very strongly in in the in the interviews is that obviously the women are working with what's possible, and uh, there was a strong thread running throughout it of uh, the women's experiences of migration, um, particularly the older women, but it profoundly influenced the younger women and the whole community as well, and and it it revealed some interesting paradoxes and ironies and. And for us, it was the, the public health team were interested in Bangladeshi women's feeding choices and decisions, but it, it said a lot about our society and infant feeding, and how the older and the younger women had negotiated themselves and their feeding and their motherhood and their identity within within this rather kind of complicated environment. Um, and I, I quite like this quote. Juliet chose it, I think, because it, it captures. Um, some of the kind of things that come through in the analysis. Um, the grandmothers, who were kind of 60-something, had arrived in Britain um, at the point in time when, uh, you're talking about the kind of 1970s-ish, that the expert discourse on, on motherhood and, and feeding was quite... Well, it's, it's obviously it's still dominant now, but it was a very kind of, you know, a technocratic discourse that was quite new in a way. Childbirth was moving into hospitals. Um, people were following expert advice much more. And ironically, the, the expert advice that women were being given when they arrived from Bangladesh was that bottle feeding was best. So formula milk was seen as very modern, technical, superior. Um, breast milk was seen as, as kind of, in a way, yes, natural, but natural was becoming... Uh, second best, and, and this this expert discourse that they encountered when they got to the hospitals was also mixed up with other issues to do with migration, um, in the sense that these women were coming to a country that they perceived to be wealthy, modern. Migrating was about you know achieving success for your family and your life. So. Um, it, it became more and more clear. I think we didn't expect it wouldn't be, but it became more and more clear that you can't just think about infant feeding in isolation from the rest of people's lives and their experience. And another thing that, that came through quite strongly was kind of briefly <coughs> in, this, in this quote as well, that the, the theme of religion is a positive influence um, because to them it wasn't just about breast being best in health terms or natural. It was also... Um, it fitted within a, a, a religious way of viewing the world as well. Um, and the other thing that I think that the, the quote points up is this, this perception that the women picked up, which is very different from, from back home in Bangladesh, but it's to do with the way that their lives in Britain were structured and also the ways in which hospitals and our health service were structured, that you begin to perceive the bottle as the easy option. It's quick, it's convenient... 
uh, it's not messy. And so something quite significant has gone on that's turned this around from breastfeeding being seen as quick, less messy, easy, and so on. Um, and uh, so it, it, <laughs> these things are going to come up in, in the rest of the discussion, basically. Um, and uh, it was interesting, actually, when we were preparing the presentation, I just downloaded an article uh, from the internet uh, from a journal on infant feeding that's called Shame If You Do, Shame If You Don't. I thought it was quite a good title. But, but the article is about the, the, the difficulties that women find themselves in Britain when they have this constant kind of underlying theme that breast milk is best. To be a good mother, you have to breastfeed your baby. But actually, it's then presented as difficult, awkward, shameful, and, and all sorts of other subtexts. And, and the, the Bangladeshi women, of course, they're living in Britain, they're exposed to that, but they have a very different experience of it because they've come from a different background. Um, so uh, this quote is from one of the younger women who was also a breastfeeding support worker. And I don't know if... Um, I can't remember whether we clarified that some of the women that were interviewed also were peer support supporters because the, the way that they recruited the peer supporters was that they were young Bangladeshi women who breastfed their babies. So they, we didn't have clear-cut categories of people here. Um, and she talked about the issue that in Bangladesh um, the idea of breastfeeding in public isn't a problem. And, you know, British people often think Islam has issues to do with you know, having to cover yourself up and modesty, but it's much more complicated than that. So in, in Bangladesh, the women would be living in an environment where breastfeeding was simply the norm, uh, where they wouldn't have uh, the same kind of issues to do with um, embarrassment or, or, or need to hide yourself, breastfeeding, that they encountered in London. And um, it also, within the environment of a kind of Tower Hamlets council flat with a a, a possibly a large extended family crammed in and living in a different pattern than you would have would have done in rural select, then then how to manage breastfeeding even within the home became a bit of an issue. And she's talking about this term freshie that that that's quite a common term in Terra Hamlets and it's used to describe the the women who are fresh off the boat. Uh, they're not really off the boat, obviously, fresh off the plane. But, um, <laughs> but it's apparently it's, it's quite a common kind of... It's slightly kind of, derogatory term to yeah, describe people who behave to like, the people back yeah, home. Yeah, so yeah. her kind brother teasing. was teasing her effectively for, for yeah, breastfeeding like yeah. a Bangladeshi woman and not being ashamed. And for those of you who don't know the, the Tower Hamlet's community, it's a very long-established community. It's quite a stable community. You saw that, you know, in fact, the majority of women in Tower Hamlet's are, are Bangladeshi. Um, and... Uh, and so we have, you know, several generations who settled in London, but there are constantly women coming in, often through marriage. Um, so you have you have these different communities. It's not just about being Bangladeshi or being Londony. Um, the younger women, particularly, have a, a third identity, which is Bangladeshi London. It's different from London London. It's different from Bangladesh. It's it's a it's a new kind of cultural identity. Um, so what about the impact of migration? Uh, it was important. It did emerge as important in the, um, in the <coughs> interviews, and obviously very much so with, with, with the grandmothers. 
um, because some of the young women have grown up, you know, born in Britain, gone to school in Britain, grown up here. But migration was still very much present in their experiences because it was present in the community. And, and so they, they compared back home in Bangladesh and, and, and home in London, different type of housing, different environment, rural versus inner city, uh, more, more informal support in Bangladesh, and also this thing that, that, that if, you're family, if you've got family in London, you may be actually, you know, your wealth may increase so you can afford to do things with remittances and so on. Um, so all these issues, housing, education, food, um, changes in lifestyle and, and, and living situations impacted on, on their feeding experiences and their feeding decisions. Um, and that was really quite an important feed running through it. Um, and this is just a quote from one of the women. Um, and it, it, it was much more nuanced than what the public health people had expected because they felt there was a problem with the mother-in-laws. And this is why they wanted us to interview the older women, and that kind of did make sense to us. But they simply saw the mother-in-laws as a barrier, that the mother-in-laws were preventing um, the young women from, from breastfeeding fully and were favouring partial feeding. And, and it wasn't that it was wrong. Um, there was evidence in, in the interviews that this, this was an issue to some extent, but it, it wasn't simple. Um, so most of the mothers, mo mothers and mothers-in-law would say, no, I, I think it's important for my daughter to breastfeed, and that's what I did when I was a young woman in Bangladesh, or that's what I was doing when I came to Britain, and then it all changed because I was taught that bottle feeding is best, but now they understood that breastfeeding was best. So it wasn't about public health messages, it was more about the circumstances of people's lives and people's domestic duties and so on. Um, and, and what struck me as quite interesting about this quote as well is that something about people's living situation had changed so that then this young woman is going upstairs to the bedroom to feed her baby, she doesn't feel comfortable to just feed the baby in the everyday course of domestic life in, in a, you know, with, a, with an extended family living in a small council flat. Um, and so um, the women often start to bottle feed in quite a selective, pragmatic way quite early on to manage the domestic situation. Um, the theme of Islam um, came through as a very, very positive influence um, um, for the women. And that's interesting. I don't think it was necessarily... I don't think it was something the public health people had really thought about, had they? They had strong views either way. I think they thought about it next year. I remember in the first day in group they had seen Islam and the increasing observance for Islam in East London over the last 10 years as well. There's been a real shift in observance. Yeah. Um, they saw that as being a barrier, I think, because of their concerns about... perceived concerns about modesty and not breastfeeding in public and being in a, in a crowded family situation. And when we actually went to talk to people, it was almost the total opposite. So there was, there was, people were getting a lot of support and, and, and comfort from the teachings of the Quran in particular that say that the child has a right to the milk for the first two years. And this was quoted to me by almost everybody who I spoke to. They, it was extremely present. Um, and when I did an exercise to ask people to, to rank the influences, um, it came out top um, for a number of the groups. So it was very, very powerful. And also those women who were um, um, particularly committed to breastfeeding, especially the ones that were also peer support workers, not everybody was obviously, but a couple of them were, 
Um, and they just they saw, for example, hijab as being really useful to hide a baby under. I mean, so <laughs> it was just sort of breastfeeding discreetly. Yeah. So it, so it was it was very it was far more complex than the public health people were were giving it credit for. And I think um, there was a lot to be said for sort of. And one of the recommendations to the public health team later were was try and embrace women's intrinsic motivation to breastfeed, and a lot of that is coming through the teachings of Islam, so you need to kind of engage with that, um, yeah. because it was so persuasive. And actually, if we go back um, to those figures, just something to point out, that you see, I mean, one of the things that, that you notice is just how low, actually, the national rates are. That's 20% there, you might not be able to see it. So the figures for England, this is only at six to eight weeks, only 20% of women on average in England are, are still exclusively breastfeeding yeah. when their babies are still very young and the public health target is six months so um, you know a lot of women start breastfeeding but the drop-off rate is very low and one of the key differences is that a lot of the women in England who stop exclusive breastfeeding will stop breastfeeding at all they quickly shift to completely bottle feeding mm -hmm. and this is one of the key differences why the partial feeding rates jump from in tower hamlets from the bottom to the top is because the, the Bangladeshi mothers were not stopping breastfeeding. So they were introducing bottles but continuing to breastfeed and Islam was obviously playing quite an important role in that because the, the you know, as some of them were talking, weren't they, about how when, when it was tough, their faith helped them to keep going against all the obstacles that they encountered and they just had this very positive you and when you do research with, with say white British women which I've, I've done in the past there's so much ambiguity in women's feelings about it and so mixed up and it's, it's very troubling for the women that, that the underlying messages in the society are actually very very negative um, breastfeeding doesn't sit easily in our society anymore and yet they've got, they're bombarded with all these health messages that it's the best so it's Hence the shame if you do, shame if you don't kind of title of that article about women's, uh, um, white British women's experiences. So um, the, the influence of Islam was quite different from what the public health people had expected and it was helping the women to keep on with breastfeeding even after they'd introduced bottles for pra pragmatic reasons. Um, and they, they did tend to continue for quite a long period with partial breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the messages back to the public health people as well, to some extent, is, well, does this matter, actually? Because, relatively speaking, compared to the British average, this is a very healthy uh, uh, way of feeding the baby. Um, so, yes, the, the issue about the breastfeeding and the wider society is, is you know, underlying a, a lot of this research that women still feel that breastfeeding in public is a, is a problem and they experience that. And Tower Hamlets, uh, like some boroughs, Tower Hamlets is particularly strong on this, I think. They have a campaign that's been going on at the same time uh, where they put notices in shops and cafes. You know, this kind of welcome to feed your baby here is a positive kind of thing to counteract that problem. Um, and it may well be, be making an impact, but... Um, it was funny, I was at the RCOG last week for a journal board meeting, that's the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and um, I went into the cloakroom to put, to put my coat in, 
and they had a little tiny breastfeeding room that wasn't quite in the toilets but was next to it and a slightly apologetic notice on the door saying you are welcome to breastfeed anywhere in the building but for those women who require privacy this room is available. It was a tiny little room and it was kind of apologetically next to the toilets but not quite in them. I thought that, that says a lot. Um, and then when I went into the cafe to get some tea there wasn't one of these notices on the cafe door saying this is you know, come and feed your baby here in a kind of welcoming way. So this is no different for the Bangladeshi women than for any other women in East End or anywhere else in Britain. But as Juliet was saying, actually, it's unhelpful to, to deal with that uh, practically and, and um, in terms of kind of psychological and spiritual kind of strength to, to negotiate these challenges. Um, Maternity services, um, of course, the message that, that the breastfeeding is best, and, you know, it's an evidence-based message, there's good public health reasons for it, a lot of it's coming from maternity care, but what were the women said about the maternity services was that they, they weren't <coughs> to be a barrier, they weren't helping the women at all. Um, I mean, for some of the women, particularly the older women, interpretation had been a big barrier, you know, the level, even if you speak some English, the level of communication uh, is, is, is not great, and therefore the women tend to suffer in information terms. Um, uh, for the younger women who have grown up speaking English, that's less an issue, and yet the information quality still was, you know, it's not just about whether you speak English or not, it's about the motivation of staff and the, and the way in which the service is structured and whether they're actually allowed the time and the space to really have a proper discussion with women and provide proper care as opposed to just trying to process them through a very, very busy system, get the baby delivered, make sure it's kind of, you know, alive and kicking and, and shove you out to the hospital. And it, it, London has got a rising birth rate, it's very busy, there's a shortage of midwives and that's what the care postnatally is rather like. And so being in hospital was not helping them to establish breastfeeding at all. Um, and they, they came out with quite a negative experience of the health services, which obviously is important because then if you've had a negative experience and, and, and a midwife comes to visit your home and says, you know, are you managing to totally breastfeed the baby and keep off bottles, then your level of kind of trust in the, in the carers has gone down. Um, social relationships were very, very important to the women. I think they kind of came second after Islam in the didn't they, in their kind of priority list. Um, and this is really, you know, perhaps it's particularly important because it's a very, very strong, close-knit community, but it's important to everybody in Britain. It's not just particular to Bangladeshi women. Um, that, that thing about the social networks having the influence and making the difference to whether what the public health people or the midwives tell you is a good thing to do um, is, is obviously very, very important. Um, and on the whole, their, their social network was very, very supportive. So the, the, the public health people had this very strong concern that mother-in-laws were a barrier, and it was less so. It was less so. Living circumstances that were yeah, a barrier that yeah. may have been caused by the kind of rules about who's responsible for feeding the rest of the family, and that was a big sort of came out in that quote from the old, younger woman who'd had to go upstairs to feed her baby, that often the younger women were responsible for providing food for everybody, and that wasn't at the same time as that their baby needed food. <laughs> they were working on different timetables. And so the mother-in-law may have um, 
helped uphold those expectations, but they hadn't actively, they would still be supportive of breastfeeding, but it's just that the two things became incompatible. The other, the other issue, of course, is that having migrated to Britain in the 70s, as I was talking about, and being given these rather kind of counter messages at the time that they migrated, then the mother-in-laws were trying to kind of make sense of these contradictory messages that they'd had. And so they did. you could see from the women's interviews that they did struggle with it a bit because there was a, a strong emphasis on... Uh, I remember one of the... One of the younger women who was a peer support worker said that although her mother-in-law had said, well, it's important to breastfeed the baby, she would then observe the baby and say, oh, your baby isn't gaining weight as quickly as your cousin's baby. Um, are you sure they're getting enough food? I can't see how much they're getting. And, of course, they, they had encountered this very strong regime in the 70s of measurement, you know, how much is in the bottle, making sure your baby's had enough obsessive weighing of babies. And if you come from a, a, a poor rural background where having enough to eat is also, you know, it's a, it's a real issue, as opposed to, you know, what we're dealing with now with everybody having too much to eat, then concern about babies gaining weight is, is completely logical. Uh, you know, a chubby baby is a healthy baby, and, and, you know, we're all trying to kind of just aren't thinking from that and it was quite tough for the for the older women I think to, to deal with all these funny contradictions that they were in the middle of um, and then of course there were the more individual things as, as Juliet said the, the level of personal motivation intrinsic motivation was pretty high in some women it was so high that they overcame all obstacles and in other women it was high but they, they had to be pragmatic about their lives and so these were the kind of things that, that on an individual level would make the difference and, and trigger the mixed feeding uh, physical difficulties, pain you know, experiencing difficulty in adjustment to breastfeeding, particularly if you'd had a poor start in the hospital um, worrying about going back to work so you start to introduce bottles even before you have to go back to work because you worry about being able to manage that process and also babies that are unsettled or perceived to be unsettled because again this living in uh, perhaps quite crowded accommodation um, with an extended family you might be trying to keep your baby quieter um, but also the background perceptions that a ba- bottle-fed baby is more contented, sleeps longer, is more quiet and so on, I think feeds into it. And this is a theme that you'll find in, if you do research in Britain on, on why women introduce bottle feeding, you'll find that in any uh, cultural group. I think it's, it's, it's not particular to the Bangladeshi women at all. Um, can I do this? So we're back to the thing you want to finish off? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what... What I think it's important to note here before I go through this is that a lot of these experiences were not, they're not about being a Bangladeshi woman, <laughs> often they're just being, being human, and, um, and, and especially at an individual level. I think there was a tendency amongst the public health team to see Bangladeshi women as being somehow special or different. And I think what was really important for us when we were thinking about these influences were that they were the same for everybody. They were just weighted in different ways the women that we were speaking to. And so those issues about personal problems, about pain and the time it takes to breastfeed and those sort of difficulties around sleep and negotiating weight gain are almost universal um, amongst breastfeeding women. And so I felt quite strongly when we went back to the public health team to, to sort of say to them, stop, stop seeing people as being different and stop giving them too much ethnicity effectively and, and you know, give them the space to be human. The, 
the, this model here is really just a way of filter. This is a filter, effectively. So we started at the top of the women's ideal of exclusive breastfeeding. Women were very aware of the public health messages about breast is best. That was they'd heard those, they knew about them, and so they did have an ideal of exclusive breastfeeding. But we've talked all about the ways in which their lives were incredibly complex and didn't support the reality of that, just like it does with a lot of other women in this country. Um, and so the fact that bottle feeding is widely accepted in the UK, that mixed feeding is the norm in Tower Hamlets, and we can see from that graph how normal it is. So if everyone else is mixed feeding, then why wouldn't you? The hospital postnatal support left a lot to be desired. And also, I mean, I've written here, um, family pressure to give formula. So there's a lot of concern within the family that breast milk wasn't enough. And particularly around um, those first few days before the milk comes in. So there was an almost ubiquitous opinion that colostrum wasn't enough to support a baby. And that was another big message for the public health, and they need to do something about perceptions about colostrum. And because we're so used to, as adults, that the quantity of food equals the amount of fullness we have, it was all, it's, it's very difficult for people to conceive of tiny amounts of colostrum as being enough to sustain a, a, a person, however small they are. And so that was one of the big um, things that came through. So family pressure to give formula, and then individual kind of difficulties. And by the time they got from the idea of exclusive breastfeeding, through this filter, they got down and they very pragmatically made the decision to mix feed. It makes, it makes sense when you write it down like this. For a lot of women who live in similarly deprived communities, other communities in the UK, by the time they get down to here, they'd be exclusively formula feeding. And we know that from the research that's done, particularly with white working class communities, that formula feeding is... You know, is have they have the highest rates of formula feeding for all sorts of very similar reasons? But the point with this community, with these women, was that they were persisting with some breastfeeding even despite all of these kind of factors that were working against them, um, and that was unusual. Um, the women themselves also, I sort of forgot to mention before, Chris mentioned that they they didn't make very much distinction between any breastfeeding and exclusive breastfeeding. So when you ask people if they breastfeed, they said yes, but they maybe that they only partially breastfeed, in fact, almost all of them would have done, but they didn't make a distinction between the two. So that was also something else that came through really strongly. Any breast milk was good, and there was no conception of formula milk as being inherently bad in and of itself. So there was a, there was, it only went one way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.